open your Bibles up to John chapter 7, John chapter 7. If you have one of our Bibles you, and you're not there yet, you can get there to nine, page 948. We're sort of in a mini section here. Uh, we've, we've been in a larger section starting in, in chapter 5, working our way through chapter 10, uh, uh, where we're looking at festivals or feasts or um, uh, uh, yeah, gatherings, things like that, uh, that, that are around the Jewish calendar uh, that, that, this, that John has been arranging these stories in, okay? We looked at the Sabbath a little bit ago, and, and now we're going to be in the, uh, the Festival of Shelters. Chapters 7 through 9 really kind of stretch that out and take place during this Festival of Shelters. What is the Festival of Shelters? Depending on your translation, it might say the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of the Booths, things like that. It's associated with the grape and the olive harvest, the fall harvest of produce, uh, in the, the Jewish month of Tishri, which would be about mid-September through mid-October for us, okay? Uh, and and uh, this festival celebrates God's provision for the people of Israel during their wilderness wanderings after he brought them out of Egypt in the days of Moses. The festival of shelters, the Passover, and the Pentecost were the three major festivals in which Jews and God-fearing people from all over were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to come to the temple and worship uh, and, and celebrate in Jerusalem. This one's called the Festival of Shelters because for seven out of the eight days that it celebrated, the Jews were required to build temporary shelters. Even if they lived in Jerusalem in houses, they would build these temporary shelters on their roofs and live in these uh, shelters as an act of remembrance uh, that God had provided and made his people live in tents, in shelters, while he guided them through the wilderness after he brought them out of Egypt. Again, uh, pointing to God's provision. But here, uh, the, uh, two, two major themes that we'll see in this, okay? Uh, and really, we'll focus on those next week. Uh, actually, Luke Holderby is coming next week to, to preach for us on, on the next... Yes, I'm so excited to have him back. Um, uh, but he's going to talk about the, the theme of water, Okay? And then uh, in two weeks, uh, I'll pick back up on the theme of light. These were two major uh, themes in the Festival of, of Shelters. And again, we'll cover those in more detail. But for today's purposes, this festival serves as the occasion for confusion over Jesus' identity as the Messiah. And my prayer is that as, as we're done, or after we're done with this passage this morning that there will be no confusion in this room about who Jesus is and, and what that means for each of us. And so this is God's word. I want I uh, to, to honor the Lord through it. And, and uh, so I need to pray for the Spirit's help as we go through this. So let's pray together. Lord, your word is eternal. It stands firm. Your faithfulness is throughout all of the earth, the universe. You make your goodness known to us through your word, and we pray that's exactly what you would do today, and that your word would lead us to your son who embodies all that you are in your glory, in your goodness, in your grace to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever misjudged somebody? Everybody's, everybody's dead on all the time, right? 
first impressions, right? You, 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 think, you, you think you know somebody maybe based on what they look like or you hear them talk for one moment and then you make a judgment, right? Sometimes those judgments are right, but more often than not, uh, they're probably wrong in at least some way, shape, or form. And I, 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 uh, speaking personally, I've definitely been way off before, right? We misjudge people. This happens to us when we use our own perspective, our own experience, and our own understanding as the launching point, okay, as, as the starting point. When we make those things the starting point, we end up, here's what we do, we, we end up making assumptions instead of assessments. Those are different things. And, and that leads then, these assumptions tend to lead to misjudgments. And while misjudgments are bound to happen because none of us is perfect, everybody made that clear when I asked the question, right? We should be careful not to misjudge our misjudgments and downplay the effect that they have on our relationships with one another and with God, to downplay them as if they don't matter. In our passage today, we're going to see the spiritual danger of misjudgment. So here's our point. Here's the thing that we're going to focus on, that we're going to learn from Jesus through this passage. Because Jesus is the Messiah who judges righteously, we must also judge according to righteous judgment. These are his words. Because Jesus is the Messiah who judges righteously, we must also judge according to righteous judgment. This morning we're going to see a contrast of perspectives, if you will, in, uh, between Jesus and a number of different groups of people in three main areas. Jesus' mission, Jesus' teaching, and Jesus' home. Jesus is going to have one perspective for all these things, and then all these different people are going to have different perspectives for all of these things. And in each case, we're going to need to make assessments and not assumptions, and then make a judgment for ourselves on whose perspective is right. So let's dig in. We're going to start John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John adds this, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had been trying to kill Jesus ever since he healed the disabled man back on the Sabbath and, and claimed equality with God back in chapter 5. Remember that? But the festival of shelters was about to begin, and so that required a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Jesus is in Galilee, if you remember the regions, Galilee's in the north, then Samaria in between, and then Judea where Jerusalem is. And so this trip was required, but... Uh, one of these things, too, here, just, just so for our clarification, um, Jesus was not the only child of Mary. He was the only child born by virgin, uh, virgin birth, virgin birth, but after she had him, she and Joseph had other sons and daughters, and now Jesus has these half-brothers who are telling him these things. trying to pressure him to go to Jerusalem, not just for the festival, although that's part of it, but their motive is, is a different one, right? They, they want him to go there and, and uh, gain some fame, 
for himself. John tells us in verse 5 that not even Jesus' own brothers believed in him. Now, we know from later in the New Testament that at least a couple of them became believers. Two of them wrote letters that are included in the New Testament books, James and Jude. You might be familiar with those. But here at the beginning of the Festival of Shelters, they had yet to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. This, the, the only thing that they were convinced of at this point was Jesus' ability to perform signs. They knew that he was capable of those things, right? They're probably also aware that he had lost his large following shortly after the feeding of 5,000. We saw that last week in the long discourse that Jesus had with the people. They came looking for him the next day. He's like, listen, you need to stop chasing me for, for bread, bread, and you need to come to me for spiritual bread. And they're like, nope, I'm out. This teaching is too hard. And a whole bunch of them left. His brothers probably were aware of that, but they knew that Jews and pilgrims from all over the known world would be in Jerusalem for this festival because it was one of the pilgrimage festivals. If there was ever a time for Jesus to to regain his popularity, to, to make back what he lost, it would be this time. Why? Because literally thousands of people from all the regions would come to this place and they would see him, they would hear him, they would be able then to go back to their regions and tell others about him. Jesus' brothers wanted him to go viral and that was the way to do it back then, right? And in their minds, there was no other option. Jesus, hey, don't hide your ability, flaunt it, make it known right? Show yourself to the world and everybody will love you. But they had yet to learn what John made clear to us back in chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world and the world was created through him and yet what? The world did not recognize him. He showed himself to the world already and they had no idea who he was. Recognition that Jesus was seeking was not as, pop, as a popular miracle worker, but as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And so far, whenever people had seen the signs that he performed, more often than not, their belief ended up being superficial. Go back, look, read through it up to this point. Tell me if you can find somebody that truly believed from his signs, maybe a, one or two here or there. But they were not the main thing. Isn't that interesting that John frames his gospel around signs? so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. They're not useless, but we need God to show us the Messiah that does the signs, right? This is a good reminder to us that proximity to Jesus does not automatically mean that someone will recognize him for who he truly is. His own brothers didn't believe in him. They grew up with him, right? They had the wrong idea. If they had the wrong idea, then it's entirely possible for someone to go to church regularly, for someone to have Christian family, Christian friends, Christian co-workers, Christian classmates, to be exposed to Christianity itself and still fail to believe in Jesus Christ. Proximity to Jesus does not equal belief in Jesus. It's also a good reminder, though, that, that uh, John has told us that these brothers do not believe in this moment. But there's no, the, 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 the hope has not been lost on them. 
right? Because we know that some of them do believe. So we, we need to see God working in the, in the midst of this. We need to see Jesus work. Jesus has not just completely wholesale dismissed his brothers either. He's going to transform their hearts as well. But really what this helps us see is that we cannot shape Jesus into whom we want him to be. We must receive him for who he already is. He is God in the flesh. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. Listen, Jesus does not conform himself to our desires, our agendas, our image. No, he conforms us to his desires, to his agenda, to his image. What did we just read during our prayer time in 2 Corinthians? Those who live should no longer live for themselves, our desires, our image, our agenda, but live for him, right? Why? Because we're new creations in him. We are in his image. We have his agenda. He's giving us his desires. One pastor put it this way. We cannot take the Jesus of our imagination. We must accept the Jesus of biblical revelation. We dishonor Jesus when we expect from him things that are not part of his mission. Jesus has a perspective on his mission, and his brothers have a different perspective. And he hinted at this mission in the next set of verses. Look at verse 6. Jesus told, told them, My time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. Jesus responded to the pressure of his, from his brothers by, by stating in no uncertain terms, hey, listen, my time has not yet arrived. My time has not yet arrived. That was in verse 6. Two verses later, he repeats it. My hour has not fully come. That phrase is, a similar, is, a, is one that should be similar. We, we will see this over and over throughout John's gospel. If you remember back in chapter 2 when, uh, when they, the, they ran out of wine at the wedding and his mother said, hey, they're out of wine. He said, what did he say? What does that have to do with me, woman? My time has not yet come, right? My hour has not yet come. Every time that phrase is used in John's gospel, it's a reminder to the readers that Jesus is never on any man's or woman's schedule. He's never on, a, on another human being's schedule. His life on earth was and is always governed by his Father in heaven, and every single second of it is accounted for. Jesus' brothers could go to the festival whenever they wanted because they weren't on God's agenda, at least not yet. Even though God had established the festival for his people, it was a shadow. It was a shadow that pointed to Christ as the substance. Jesus is the shelter, right? But Jesus' brothers had yet to realize that and because even though they were Jewish, they still belonged to the world. So they could go up and, and celebrate the festival, but only really superficially until they realized the true meaning of what it pointed to. They told Jesus to go to the festival and show himself to the world, but Jesus' understanding of the world was different than theirs. Back in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, he told this to Nicodemus. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The light has shown itself into the darkness, into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so, so that his deeds may not be exposed. They hide. Light comes looking. It pierces the darkness. It exposes. And they run from it. Jesus' brothers wanted him to show the world his works, but Jesus came to show the world its own works to expose the evil deeds of darkness and to expose the people's need for him. He came not to condemn them, but to show them, to show us our need and to show himself to be the provision for that need. His brothers thought that the world would love him, but Jesus made it clear that the world already hated him. Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were already trying to kill him, right? And that, that, that pressure's only going to increase from here on out. And they would actually succeed, but not until Jesus allowed them to do so because he was carrying out his father's agenda. The reality is that exactly at the right time, at the exact right time, Jesus would go to Jerusalem publicly, fully, and he would be put on public display in front of thousands of people from all over the world who traveled there for another festival, the Passover. This festival that, that celebrated God's provision of a sacrificial lamb in order to save the lives of Israel's firstborn sons as he brought them out of Egypt. A substitute sacrifice. Jesus hung on the cross as the true Passover lamb who was sacrificed to save all who believe in him. He was showing his greatest work to the world. And what did they do? They didn't love him. They mocked him. They spit on him. They beat him. They pierced his side with a spear. He didn't become a public hero. He became a public disgrace. The world did not love him. It loved itself and hated the one who came to them in love. Like they did with all his other works, the people missed the point of what they were seeing. Jesus' own brothers wouldn't understand the significance of what he had done on the cross until he revealed himself to them after the resurrection from the dead. Here his brothers made a judgment about who he was and about what he was about, and they were wrong. They misjudged Jesus. Their brother, the Messiah, the Son of God, they assumed that his motives were the same as theirs. Listen, if I was in your place, this is what I would do, right? But Jesus didn't come to wow the world with his signs. He came to woo the world with his sacrifice. The king did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Jesus' brothers had a different agenda than he did. His mission was not to bring popularity to himself. His mission was to bring salvation to sinners. What a mission. He would not bend to accommodate his brother's plans for him. He was determined to carry out his father's plans, not only for him, but also for them and for all of humanity. So after they failed to convince him here, he stayed in Galilee. You go to the festival. Look at verse 10. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? 
And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Now, we need to be clear here. Jesus did not lie to his brothers. I know at first it seems like he said, I'm not going up to the festival. And then the next, very next verse, it says he's going up to the festival. God's word never contradicts itself. Jesus is not contradicting himself. He did not mean, I'm not going up to the festival at all. What he meant was, I'm not going up on your timeline. I'll go up when I'm ready to go up, and that's when the Father tells me I need to go. There's a difference. And he wasn't going up publicly because he was carrying out the Father's agenda, not his brother's agenda. He didn't come there with all of his magic tricks ready to, to put a show on. It wasn't to draw attention to himself. But as we see, he was already on the people's minds, right? There's murmuring going on, whispers in the crowd. The Jewish leaders were expecting him to show up, so they're already looking for him because they wanted to kill him. Where is he? Keep your eye out. And it seems as though most other people were expected to see him there too, but they were divided on their opinion of him. Like, yeah, he's a good man, right? And others like, man, this guy is a bald-faced liar. Can't you see that? Don't be fooled by him. But they were all, again, saying these things under their breath. Why? Because they feared the Jews the Jewish leaders and their repercussions, repercussions, if they sided with Jesus. Everybody kept it on the down low. Fear of man is a crippling thing, isn't it? People today are still divided in their opinions about Jesus. Some say that he was a good man. Some uh, reject him outright. Still some say that he was a good teacher and nothing more. Are they right? Let's find out. Let's look at his teaching. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> when the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how is he, this man so learned since he has not been trained? Jesus answered them, my teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know the Father or he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus' brothers wanted him to go to the festival and perform more signs, but Jesus went there to teach. If you notice, in, in John's gospel, most of the time that people have come to true faith in Christ, it's because of the words that he spoke to them, more than it is the signs that he's shown them. But the ones who believe because of the signs do so because they also hear the words and they believe. Jesus went there to teach, and he would inevitably, inevitably draw attention to himself by by doing so, but he wasn't afraid of the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him. We need to understand that too. That's not ultimately why he went up to the festival privately. He was following the Father's agenda. And according to the Father's agenda, when the festival was already half over, that's when he got to go and make himself known to go to the temple and start teaching. As people stood there and listened to them, they were dumbfounded. They were amazed by how well he knew the scriptures and was able to explain them, even though he'd never been to rabbinical school, to seminary of the day, right? 
And, and what's more, he wasn't quoting other rabbis, which was a mark of authoritative and reliable teaching in Jesus' day. The more rabbis that you cited, the more trustworthy your teaching was because it was traditional, it was foundational teaching that didn't change. Anybody who attempted to teach on their own authority was immediately discredited and dismissed. But even though Jesus wasn't relying on other rabbis as his sources, he also made it clear that his teaching was not his own. He said, my teaching comes from the one who sent me. He's talking about his heavenly father, right? Back in John 5, 19, Jesus said, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. In John 5, 30, he said, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Back in the days when God sent prophets to Israel, it was common for those prophets to emphasize that their teaching had not come from themselves, but from the one who sent them, right? But you would never hear one of the prophets say, truly I tell you. What you would hear them say is, thus says the Lord, or this is the word of the Lord. Jesus can say, truly I tell you, because he is the Lord. He is the Lagos, the word, the living word, who was with God and who was God and who uh, was in the beginning, who created all things. He's one with the Father, so whatever the Father says, the Son also says, my teaching is not my own, it comes from the one who sent me. The only source the Son cites here is the Father himself. Back in chapter 3, John wrote, for the one whom God sent speaks God's words. So God's word must be our source too, right? Think with me for a minute. When you have conversations with people around, around uh topical things about Christianity, theological arguments or debates or conversations, what do you rely on more to build your argument? Scripture passages or sermon clips? Don't get me wrong. We need uh, teachers. We need preachers. God has given them as gifts to the church that, uh, to, to, that we can listen to and, and uh, glean good wisdom from their teaching, but that's only beneficial when their teaching comes from the Word of God itself. When they get us back to the scriptures, the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 says, uh, says that the Bereans received the Apostle Paul's teaching with great eagerness. They weren't skeptical of Paul. They were excited that he was there. They were, they were joyfully engaging in all that he had to say, and yet they still examined the scriptures daily to see if what he said was true. I hope you're doing that as well. That's one of the reasons that we have our Bibles open together so you can look down and say, is this true? I wish I could tell you that everybody who teaches from the Bible was re a reliable teacher. But there are false teachers who claim to speak on God's behalf while they abuse his word and lead people astray. Just because they have a Bible in their hand does not mean that they have the truth in their hearts. So how do we keep our guard up and watch out for them without just being skeptical of everybody? How do we maintain the attitude of the Bereans, right? To receive with eagerness, but also test. Jesus tells us in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. 
The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. So the next time that you hop on YouTube or your favorite podcast app and you pull up a, a preacher or a sermon or a talk or whatever from a preacher or a teacher, ask yourself this, who are they talking about? Who are they talking about? Are they talking about themselves or are they talking about Jesus? False teachers draw more attention to themselves than they do to anyone or anything else. They claim to get their authority from God, but if you listen closely, they'll never let anyone examine or question that claim. How dare you challenge my authority? Their message is ultimately self-serving, and it often involves coaxing you into sending them money by promising that God will reward you if you do. These so-called preachers and teachers are ultimately seeking public recognition for themselves. Show yourselves to the world. Build your own brand. Seek your own glory. We need to understand, this is so key, what Jesus just said. Not even Jesus himself was speaking on his own authority. Not even Jesus himself sought his own glory. Did you catch that? He sought to glorify the one who sent him by doing the Father's will. This teaching is not my own. It's from him who sent me. I desire to do his will. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't have glory. But in the same vein where he is the king who came to serve and not to be served, he's the son who came to glorify the Father, not to glorify himself. He said that anybody who wants to do God's will will know whether the teaching they hear is from God or not. Here's the thing. If a person approaches God first intellectually, he sets himself up as the judge in order to determine whether or not he thinks God is right. Does what God has to say match what I believe and, and I'm, the, I'm the, the, the standard for that? It's an attempt to make God bend in submission to one's self. But the person who humbly bends himself, Jesus' own brother, James, in chapter 1 of James, 19, 20, 21, somewhere in there, where he's talking about, hey, be, everybody needs to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of, of, of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. And he says, instead, we should humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. When we come willing, humbling ourselves before God, willing to do what he wants, then we will actually learn what he wants us to do. True understanding is first a heart issue before it's ever a mind issue. In verse 18, Jesus said that his teaching was true and that there was no unrighteousness in him. That's a very stark contrast to the Jewish authorities that he was speaking to. And he gave an example of their falsehood and their unrighteousness by, by citing one of their favorites, right? We've heard this over and over. He has this conversation with them a lot about Moses. Look at verse 19. Didn't Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who is trying to kill you? I perform one work and all, you are all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, by the way, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop 
judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgment. Jewish authorities put Moses up on a pedestal because the law came through Moses. And in their minds, that's how you know God, through the law. But one of the major commandments of, in the law of Moses, one of the ten, right, the big ones, do not murder. And here they are trying to kill an innocent man. Literally the only innocent man who ever lived. You have this law, but you're not even keeping it. You don't even know what you're doing. You're trying to kill me. And I'm perfectly innocent. I'm actually righteous. And you're trying to be righteous. People in the crowd heard this and they thought that Jesus was either crazy or paranoid and they accused him of being demon-possessed. They're like, what is this? What do you mean? Who's trying to kill you? Remember, the crowd is made up of a whole bunch of people from all over the place, some of them far off. They don't know all of this animosity that's going on between Jesus and the religious leaders. They're just hearing about this for the first time, some of them. And so they're like, some of them know that they're trying to kill him. Others have no idea. And these are the ones that are speaking up right here. What are you talking about? That's crazy. So Jesus filled them in by pointing them back to this disabled man that he healed on the Sabbath back at chapter 5. This is the sticking point for them. This is where they began to want to kill Jesus because he healed this man on the Sabbath, and not because he healed the man on the Sabbath, actually, because he told the man to pick up his mat and walk. Jesus had the audacity to make this man work on the Sabbath, to pick up his mat and to walk. And then when he claimed to be God, they accused him of blaspheme. Uh, blasphemy, and they wanted to kill him. They were amazed at, that Jesus did this, but not amazed in the sense of being impressed, amazed in the sense of being shocked. They were offended that Jesus had the audacity to do what he did. But we need to understand, Jesus never actually broke the Sabbath. He broke all of their man-made traditions, their rules that they added on top of it. They were so concerned with keeping it themselves that they, that they got all the way down to the nitty-gritty detail. What, can, what constitutes work? Well, you definitely can't pick up your mat. Remember what Jesus told his brothers back in verse 7. He said, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's exactly what he was doing here with the Jewish authorities. He was testifying about their evil works. He already showed them that they don't keep the law by trying to kill him breaking the, the, the commandment, and then he explained how their judgment was skewed by their own hypocrisy. If you remember from our series through Genesis, circumcision was actually given to Abraham as a covenant sign before the law was ever given to Moses. The law never, never we not, never even got to the law in Genesis. It doesn't come till Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, right? Circumcision was an act of restoration. It was, it was a covenant sign. Every newborn male had to be circumcised eight days after he was born so that he wouldn't be cut off from God's people. It was an act of restoration. Sometimes that eighth day fell on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders had to make a choice, either obey the law of the circumcision or obey the law of the Sabbath, which prohibited God's people from doing any work on that day as a way of resting in his provision for them. It's a conundrum, right? If, if you're a legalist and you're a rule follower, you have a problem. Which one are we going to obey? They chose to obey the law of circumcision because it was a work of mercy and restoration that took precedence over uh, not doing any work on the Sabbath. And that's where Jesus pointed out their 
consistency and skewed judgment. Listen, it, it, like if you're willing, Jesus is telling them, if you're willing to perform a restorative act of mercy on one part of a person on the Sabbath, and by the way, that inflicts pain on the child that you're performing it on, if you are allowing yourselves to do that one thing, then why in the world would you be mad at me for, for performing a restorative act of mercy on the Sabbath that made it a whole man well and took away his pain? It's hypocrisy. Remember what Jesus told the Jewish leaders back in chapter 5? He said, if you believed Moses, then you would believe me because Moses wrote about me, Right? Jesus is the one who keeps someone from being cut off from God's people. He is the restoration that circumcision points to. He is the rest and the provision that the Sabbath points to. He is the ultimate fulfillment of both of those things because he came to endure the pain of the cross and give himself as a sacrifice in order to fully restore sinners back to God and enable them to enter his eternal rest. That's what the Jewish leaders failed to see. Jewish leaders were self-righteous. None of us probably know what that is, right? They made themselves the standard by which they judged other people. And they gave themselves a pass for doing restorative work on the Sabbath while they condemned Jesus for doing the same thing in actually an even better way. That's what self-righteousness does. It views self as the ultimate example of what is good and right and true, and it excuses in itself what it condemns in others. And the irony is that we can sit here easily and condemn these religious leaders for their self-righteousness while turning a blind eye to our own. I can be just as quick to point out what's wrong with others before first examining my own heart. How about you? Am I guilty of that? That's a question I need to ask more often. I can be just as quick to be offended and get defensive when someone else points out my inconsistencies. How about you? Self-righteousness is always self-deceiving. You know what it is? It's after its own glory. If you're the final authority on yourself and on the people around you, then that should be a warning sign that self-righteousness is getting cozy in your heart. If you're rationalizing your behavior more than repenting for it, that's another warning sign. The Jewish leaders were making judgments based on their own superficial rules and traditions. Jesus told them to stop that. Stop it and learn what actual righteousness looks like so that they could make right judgments. He was making a judgment about them according to his actual righteousness. Remember, Jesus is never wrong in his assessment of the human heart. Not one time, not ever. Jesus never misjudges a person. Never. So we would all be wise to take verse 24 to heart for ourselves rather than dismiss it as something that the Jewish leaders need and we do not. Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. There's a difference between being judgmental and making wise discernment. 
So far, Jesus' brothers misjudged his mission, and the Jewish leaders misjudged his teaching. And in the rest of our passage, we'll see that people also misjudged Jesus' home. Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this the man that they were trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. As, uh, as he was teaching in the temple, getting ahead of myself. We'll get there in a second. Do you hear the inconsistency in the crowd? Like, they're all over the place, right? They don't even know what to think about Jesus. There's so many people there from so many different backgrounds that have heard so many different things. They had, there's as many opinions about Jesus as there were people at the festival. And still the people wondered if perhaps Jesus really was the Messiah, but they were conflicted about it. On the one hand, some of these people, some of them knew that the, the authorities wanted to kill Jesus, but they saw them not trying to kill Jesus, and they're like, oh, maybe they changed their mind. Maybe he really is the Messiah, right? And on the other hand, they knew that Jesus was from Nazareth, so that, in their minds, seemed to rule him out as a Messiah candidate. By that time, there was a rumor floating around that no one would know where the Messiah would be born, uh, would come from, that he would be sort of this anonymous figure until he made himself known. But as we'll see next week, the prophet Micah wrote in, uh, in his book of prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. This, this, this belief that the Messiah wouldn't, wouldn't be known was unfounded, but it was still a belief. It was a misjudgment. Jesus made it clear that neither of those two places, though, Bethlehem, where he was born, or Nazareth, where he lived with his folks, or even Capernaum, where he was doing his ministry most of the time. None of those were his real home. Now let's get to 28. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, You know me, and you know where I'm from. And yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Jesus essentially told the crowd, hey, listen, you think that you know me, and you think that you know God, but you really don't know God because you really don't know me. I know him because I came from him, and he really is the one who sent me. Only those who know Jesus are those who know God. Because Jesus is God. He's one with the Father. He's God the Son, sent by God the Father to carry out the mission of redemption in the power of the Spirit. The Jews thought that they knew God because of the law that he gave them. But Jesus has already made it clear that the law pointed directly to him. You see, we know God because of the Son that he gave us, who is the fulfillment of the law and the Spirit that he put in us. So here's the question. Do you know God? You answer that question by answering this one. Do you know Jesus Christ? And to know him is to love him, to trust him. And let me tell you, you'll never find someone more trustworthy than Jesus. And you'll never know a greater love than his. So why not know him? Why not turn to him in faith? Jesus' words here got mixed reactions from the crowd. Look at verse 30. And then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him, and so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants 
to arrest him. Verse 30 is another reminder that Jesus was not subject to the will of man. They wanted to, they, they, they couldn't, couldn't even grab him. Can't even take hold of him. They, they tried to grasp him, but nobody could because he was subject not to their will, but to the Father's will. No matter how hard they tried, they were not going to be able to get their hands on him until that matched up with the Father's timeline. We're told in verse 31 that many in the crowd believed in Jesus because of all the signs that he was doing. But again, we know how wishy-washy that's been so far in the gospel. This sounds very similar to the end of chapter 2 where then John followed it up with, but Jesus didn't believe their belief, right? We don't know that yet. It doesn't tell us one way or the other. But so far, the track record for belief just based on the signs alone has not been great. One thing that is clear is that the chief priests and the Pharisees were very much opposed to Jesus and his claims. And so they sent temple, temple guards to arrest Jesus. And next week, we'll find out if they succeeded. But I think that, that we could, based on what we've read so far, make a guess. Because it's clear who's really in control here. Let's finish this up. Look at verse 33. Then Jesus said, I'm only with you for a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, where does he intend to go that we, don't, we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks to teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made? You will look for me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. There's another time reference in verse 33. Jesus said, I'm only with you for a short time. He was on the Father's schedule, and according to that schedule, the cross was coming soon. And after the cross would come the resurrection, and after the resurrection would come the ascension. The resurrected Jesus was going to return to the one who sent him. He was going back to his heavenly Father to sit on his heavenly and eternal throne. And after he returned to the Father, the Jews would go on looking for the Messiah, but he would be nowhere to be found. Why? Because he was already standing in front of them, and they missed him. And if you reject the Messiah, you cannot go to where he is. Jesus just made a righteous judgment here. You'll look for me. You won't find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jewish leaders looked religious on the outside, but they had unbelieving hearts on the inside. They misjudged Jesus, and they misjudged themselves. They had this you-can-run-but-you-can't-hide mindset toward Jesus. Where's he going to go that we can't find him? How to work out for him when they were looking for him at the temple? Where is he? They hated the Greeks. They wondered if Jesus was going to go hide among them so that they wouldn't follow him to places they considered to be unclean. The irony here is that after Jesus uh, was raised and showed himself to the disciples and gave them the commission and then ascended into heaven, the good news of the gospel, where'd it go? It went out to the dispersion. It went out to the Jews among the Greeks and to the Greeks and to, to uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? In fact, John's gospel was initially written for the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks. These very people that they're going, Is he, he's not going to go there, right? John's like, yeah. This is for you, the ones that are reading it, so that Jesus would be made known to all. A lot of people misjudge Jesus in this passage, but Jesus didn't misjudge anybody here. That's because Jesus never misjudges anyone. He knows what's in the heart of every man. He knows the heart of the Father because he's one with the Father, and so he always judges according to righteous judgment. And a day is coming when Jesus will return and show himself to the world very publicly. 
and make a final judgment on all people everywhere, and everyone else will look for places to hide, and there will be none. There will be no place where we can go where he will not be able to find us. Every last person who's ever lived will stand before God and give an account of their lives, and he will not judge according to outward appearance. Didn't we, didn't we feed people? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Lord, Lord, depart from me, I never knew you. He will judge according to righteous judgment, and only those who put their hope in Jesus Christ will be counted as righteous with him because he was already judged in our place on the cross and gave us his own righteousness. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Nobody, nobody can afford to misjudge Jesus Christ. Yeah, we've made some misjudgments. We've misjudged each other but nobody can afford to misjudge Jesus. His mission comes from the Father in heaven. His teaching comes from the Father in heaven. And his home is with the Father in heaven. He is the Messiah who has come to save sinners and to reconcile us to the Father in heaven. Because Jesus is the Messiah who judges righteously, we must also judge according to righteous judgment. We must all judge ourselves to be in great need of him. And we must all judge him to be the one and only one who has met our every need. And when we do that, we won't have to go looking for him because he will have made his home with us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and your son. We're so grateful that you have sent him to us and we're thankful that you have so clearly revealed yourself to us through your word, through your son, by your spirit. Help us, Lord, as we make judgments, not to be judgmental, but, but to have wisdom and discern what is right, righteous, and judge accordingly. All for your glory and for our good, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.